If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two. We're going to start in verse six. We're going to read through verse sixteen. So First Corinthians chapter two, starting in verse six, says this: Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us, through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give light to our eyes this morning to understand your word. God, change us. May we love the scriptures which point us to Christ. And may we love Christ more today. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. My wife and I love true crime documentaries. Um, if you know us at all, you know that we... Loved late at night after the kids are in bed to uh, turn on, you know, Netflix. They have, seems like, well, I would say endless, but we've pretty much hit the end. Uh, uh, an endless supply of these kind of true crime documentary shows. So shows like Forensic Files or Cold Case or Dateline. You know, it sounds like we're super old. Um, we love Dateline. Um, and, and these other kinds of shows that document real-life crimes and then follow the investigation and the court case with all the twists and turns. We've often joked um, about how one of us could probably dispose of the other one without ever being caught, <laughs> simply because we've seen so many of these crime documentaries, and we would know how to get away with it. Um, not that we would ever do that. Um, but one of these crime shows came to my mind as I was preparing this message. Why do we believe the Bible? Now, I don't remember many details about this particular episode, and perhaps I'm remembering several different episodes and combining them into one, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, I remember one show where a man was arrested and accused of murdering a small child. But once the court case started and the prosecution began to bring out their evidence, it seemed like they had a very weak case. The man had been arrested because he was ID'd by a supposed eyewitness. But there was no forensic evidence to physically tie him to the scene, no DNA, no fingerprints, no footprints. In fact, the forensic evidence often pointed in another direction altogether. He had what seemed to be a pretty tight alibi, and even the witness that turned him in was called into question and seemed to be unreliable. It seemed to me that a jury would not be able to convict him beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, in this particular case, the man was convicted, which is really what the show was about, was how was he convicted on such little evidence. But there's one particular scene in this episode that stood out to me. At the very end of the trial, the man's wife was called in to testify. Now, uh, she, of course, was testifying on his behalf as a character witness. 
She took her place on the stand, and her husband's lawyer asked her a simple question. Your husband claims to be innocent of this crime. Why do you believe him? Now, what do you think your response would be to that question? Would you or anyone at that point begin to recount the lack of evidence, the lack of physical evidence, or the unreliability of the witnesses, or the fact that he had an alibi for the night of the crime. So I believe my husband is, is innocent because look at all this evidence we've already seen, right? L- look at how he has an airtight alibi and his, the witness is unreliable. No, she didn't say that stuff at all. Her defense went something like this. I believe my husband is innocent because he told me he's innocent. I've known him for many years. He has proven himself to be, a, to be a trustworthy and reliable man. If he claims to be innocent, I believe him. He is a wonderful husband and father. It would never hurt a small child. He did not do the crime for which he is being accused. So, do you see how that argument for innocence is different than the others? On the one hand, we have objective, well, seemingly objective, quantifiable, even tangible evidence, or in this case, lack thereof. But in the wife's testimony, we have subjective, internal testimony of the person's character. Now, both types of evidence testify to the truth, but they do so in different ways, right? Yes, evidence that is more objective quantifiable, even tangible, is more suited for the courtroom, and so we are prone to put more emphasis on it in this particular analogy. But the fact that the wife's testimony is subjective does not make it any less true, especially when we consider what would happen if more witnesses were brought forward. What if dozens of people were brought forward? Family members, close friends, old friends, neighbors, and even acquaintances, and they all gave the same kind of character testimony then the accused man's case would be even stronger. Now, why is this? Because the man is giving his word that he's innocent, and the reliability of a person's word is directly tied to that person's character. That's key. The reliability of your word is directly tied to your character. If your character is flawed, if people can't trust you, why would they trust you, right? If no one else around you can trust you, why would anybody else trust you? Why would a judge trust you or a jury trust you? Now, I'd like to take some of these categories and apply them to the question we are considering today. And it's not going to be a one-for-one kind of thing, right? We're not in a courtroom. The Bible isn't on trial here. But some of these categories of thought can sort of apply when we seek to answer this question, why do we believe the Bible? So there are plenty of good external reasons why we should believe the Bible, okay? Books upon books have been written about the trustworthiness and reliability of the Bible. In fact, I have a wonderful list of resources right here, books, Uh, articles, online videos, resources. I mean, books and books and books have been written on why the Bible is a trustworthy book, okay? External reasons. So if you want this list, my email is cmdbillingsley, Caleb Michael Dean Billingsley, cmdbillingsley at gmail.com. Send me an email, say, hey, I want the list. Bam, I'll shoot it to you, and you'll have it, okay? Great, great resource, great resource. Um, These resources are worthy of our attention, okay? It's worth our time to understand how we got the Bible. It's worth our time to read and study and think hard about the external evidence for the reliability of the Bible. Now, this topic spans all kinds of areas of study, things like transmission and translation of the Bible. Wasn't the Bible written in Hebrew and Greek? Yes, then how did we get it into English? What did that process look like? How do we make sense of all the different English translations? These are good questions, questions that we need to think about. What about um, 
textual criticism of the Bible. Wasn't the Bible copied over and over over the course of hundreds of years? Didn't people make mistakes? Doesn't that affect how we should think about the Bible today? Great questions. We need to, we need to have answers for this. We need to inform ourselves. Um, what about... Um, the reliability of the, of the historical account. Since the Bible was written hundreds, even thousands of years ago, how can we know that what we have is actually what happened? Is there any way to verify the biblical accounts? What about supposed errors or contradictions in the Bible that people bring up all the time? Are there answers out there for these things? Yes, there are. This is a great place to start, okay? So this is sort of the external witness or the external argument for the reliability of the Bible. These are all great areas of study, and there are tremendous resources available to help inform us about these things. But here's the deal. You can spend your entire life studying these things. Some men have dedicated themselves to one small area of this kind of study. They could fill a lifetime, okay? So if you're thinking about these issues and you're wanting all of your questions answered or um, if you're a very skeptical person, I, I, I encourage you, check these things out. Read, study, um, inform yourself. But just know that you could spend an entire lifetime and you'll never get all of your questions answered. So when we, when we think about the question this morning, why do we believe the Bible, we're tempted to go this route. We're tempted to go to historical sources, textual criticism, um, you know, the more external, objective reasons why we can trust the Bible. And I'm saying those things are good. We need to know some of that stuff. We need to inform ourselves. We need to make sure we have an answer to give people. But that's not where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning. Remember the courtroom analogy. There are external reasons for believing someone's word, but then there are internal reasons, knowing that person's character, spending time with that person. Now, what do I mean when I say internal reasons? The Baptist Catechism asks this question. How do we know the Bible is the word of God? The answer the Bible evidences itself to be the word of God by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power to convert sinners and to edify the saints. That's more external things, things that you can see. But only the Spirit of God can make us willing to agree and submit to the Bible as the word of God. The Westminster Confession puts it this way. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. More external things. Yet, notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. There's external reasons, and there are internal reasons to believe the Bible. This morning, I want to focus on the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. So we see from these creeds, when it comes to believing the Bible, Christians have often distinguished between the external witness of the Scriptures and the internal witness of the Scriptures. I don't want to set this up as a stark dichotomy. Okay, These things go hand in hand, right? You're not going to believe in the external sources if you don't want to, okay? And, and some people are going to be so skeptical, it doesn't matter what you put in front of them, they're not going to believe anything that we say because they don't want 
to believe, right? So, so there's not a stark dichotomy between all things external and then only internal. These things overlap. But this morning, um, I'm going to focus mainly on what we mean by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we move further into what this means, let me frame the question a little differently. Instead of just asking, why do we believe the Bible? Let me ask it this way. Why do you believe the Bible and your neighbor does not? Why do you believe the Bible when perhaps no one else in your family does? Why do you believe the Bible in an age where it is cool and hip to be skeptical about everything and cast off authority and degrade those that take seriously their religious faith? Why do you believe the Bible when so many others do not? Now, this is a question that when we ponder the answer ought to cause us to stand and wonder at the work of our sovereign God. He has caused us to see and understand the scriptures as the very words of our Father. The answer to this question ought to break our hearts for our unbelieving neighbor and our unbelieving mother or brother or son or daughter, not to break our hearts when we see this generation that seems to have no regard for anything sacred. Because you see, here's the key, the reason we believe the Bible is simple. It's because we have been given the mind of Christ. That's where I'm going, okay? The reason you believe the Bible is because you have been given the mind of Christ. The reason I believe the Bible is because I've been given the mind of Christ. Let's look in 1 Corinthians. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 and 2, Paul is contrasting the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. Okay? This is what he's done through chapter 1 into chapter 2. He has just told us that the message of the gospel is foolishness to the world. This is in chapter 1, but it holds the power of God. So the gospel message is foolishness to unbelievers. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The wisdom that the world cherishes is powerless to save and cannot lead people to a right understanding of God or salvation. Chapter 1, verse 20, asks the question, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So the world, according to Paul, cannot know God through worldly wisdom. But people come to know God through the folly of the message of the cross. Now, skipping down to chapter 2, Paul says, And I, uh, starting in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul's not using the wisdom of the world. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. There's that dichotomy. There's the wisdom of the world. And then there's the wisdom of God or, or the spiritual power. Right? Wisdom of the world is empty and powerless. The wisdom of God is powerful and spiritual. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul has just set up a stark dichotomy. On one side is the wisdom of the world, and on the other side is spiritual power. His ministry is one of internal power through the Holy Spirit, not external showmanship or superficial rhetoric, which was so highly valued in his day. Going on to verse 6, Paul then takes the term wisdom and begins to redefine it. So far, this word wisdom has mainly been used negatively. When he uses the word wisdom, he's mostly referring to the wisdom of the world. But here he says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret 
and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So here we have the decree of God. Now don't forget where we're going. We believe the Bible because we have been given the mind of Christ. But before we get there, we have to understand why it's important to have the mind of Christ. And this is where the decree of God becomes so important. Verses 6 and 7, Paul tells us that the wisdom of God was decreed before the ages. But what is this wisdom that he's referring to? What does this wisdom consist of? He tells us it's secret and it's hidden, but then he tells us that it was decreed. Which is it? Is it secret, Paul, or is it decreed? Is it revealed? Well, it's both, right? It was secret and hidden, but is now re- has now been revealed. In fact, Paul tells us exactly what this wisdom of God consists of back in chapter 1, in verse, starting in verse 22. So look back in chapter 1, verse 22. He tells us that Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he says, this wisdom, this decree, what does this decree or this wisdom consist of? It consists of Christ crucified. In chapter 2, the beginning, he says, I came to you and I knew nothing except one thing, Christ crucified. So, this wisdom consists of the message of Christ crucified. This wisdom is essentially the message of the gospel. Now, why is this important? Why am I going here? What am I doing? Because look back at chapter 2, verse 7. He says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Then he loosely quotes a passage from Isaiah, which says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Think about that for a moment. God has decreed that the gospel, God has decreed the gospel before the foundation of the world. But not everyone has understood the message, right? He says that if the rulers of his day had understood the gospel message, they would not have crucified Christ. But all of this was brought about in order to accomplish his decree to redeem his own people. Who are these people? It's those who love him. This is the same group that Paul calls the called back in chapter 1, verse 24. Now, what does all of this have to do with our original question? Why do we we believe the Bible? Well, it helps to clarify the question. It's important because here we get a clear explanation of the content of the biblical message. If we're going to ask the question, why do we believe the Bible, we've got to get it. Okay, what does the Bible say? It's not, I mean, why do we believe the Bible? We We have to understand what are we supposed to believe? About the Bible. According to this passage, um, the Bible consists of one decree the decree of God. The wisdom of God is made known in the scriptures. And this decree is, is central, or I should say, what's central to the decree is the gospel message. So we're not just talking about events, believing the events that are recorded in the Bible or believing the ethical principles taught in the Bible. And we're not just talking about believing some parts of Scripture and leaving some behind. Paul quotes here from the Old Testament because he believes it's true. He quotes um, from the Old Testament to show that his message, which is found in the New Testament, is valid thereby claiming the truthfulness of the gospel message as well. So the Bible is one story, one purpose, one decree, okay? To separate the Bible out and 
claim to believe parts of it without believing the central core of its message is to rip the sun out of the solar system. Without it, nothing else is holding the planets to their course. So, to believe the Bible is to believe the gospel. So now we can clarify the question. Instead of asking, why do we believe the Bible? And get ourselves caught up in all kinds of other questions about the reliability of the, in the historical accounts and the transmission of the text, which are all good things to, to think about. We can ask a more specific question. Why do we believe the gospel? You see that? If we're going to ask the question, why do we believe the Bible? We really have to ask, why do we believe the gospel? Because according to this, God's decree has been sent out before the ages for our glory. What is this decree? Christ crucified. This is the central teaching, the core of the biblical message. There is one decree, one one plan, one story, one epic in history, Christ crucified. Everything before Christ points to Christ. Everything after Christ points back to Christ. If we're going to say we believe the Bible, we have to believe Christ crucified, the gospel. So, to clarify the question... Why do we believe the gospel? But, I keep, I keep just going back and be like, we can't answer that until we answer this, so I'm going to do it again. We can't answer that until we answer the negation of that question. Why don't we believe the gospel? Why don't people believe the gospel? Why don't your neighbors, why don't some of your family members believe the gospel? Look down to verse 14 in chapter 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of God, and in fact he cannot accept the things of God. In other words, the natural man, using his own reasoning, uh, his own reasoning powers, apart from the work of God, is not able to accept this gospel message. Are they able to understand it? Sure. People can understand what the gospel is. The gospel is Jesus came to live a perfect life, to redeem a people uh, for his own possession. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead. Those are the events that encompass the gospel. But... That's not the kind of belief or understanding that we're talking about, is it? Paul tells us the natural man, under his own reasoning powers, apart from the work of God, is not able to accept or believe this gospel. Believe, to trust it. Remember, Paul just told us that the decrees of God were secret and hidden and not understood by the rulers of his age those that crucified the Lord Jesus. So the natural man is not neutral. Natural is not neutral. The man who cannot accept the things of God will intentionally work to suppress the truth of God and take active steps to fashion a God after his own likeness. This is key. No one is neutral. The natural man is not neutral man. Romans 1 gives us a dark yet accurate picture of the natural man. Flip over to Romans 1 real quick. It's a great, um, well, I say great. It's a pretty scary picture of our sinful condition, the condition that, that we are all in apart from God's saving work. Romans 1, starting in verse 18 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever." For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The natural man is not neutral. No one is neutral. Every person is either born of the spirit or born of the flesh. And we are all born of the flesh until God remakes us born in the spirit. Okay? So this is a a description of all of us apart from Christ. But we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. They are folly. He is not even able to understand the things of God. There is no middle ground. Now, many people you talk to want you to believe that they are simply objective thinkers, Right? They're sort of weighing and evaluating the claims of the Bible and then comparing them to other religions. And once they come to a settled conclusion on the truthfulness of one particular system, usually one they've made up themselves, then they'll commit to it. But of course, that commitment is subject to change and modification according to personal preference. The fact is no one's neutral. There's no such thing as an objective thinker when it comes to the gospel message. No one is neutral. We all have a proclivity and a bent towards idolatry. This perceived neutrality is just that, perceived. The foolishness of the natural man will always push him away from the truth of the gospel. The natural man cannot understand the message of Christ crucified. It's a problem of ability. It's not that we really, really want to understand, but God won't let us. It's that we can't understand, and we don't want to understand. Now, when was the last time you meditated on your hopeless condition? apart from Christ? When was the last time you thought about the hopeless condition of your friends and family members who do not believe? Their spiritual minds have been darkened. They are unable to view the world rightly because they are still living in spiritual blindness. Their moral judgment clouds their reasoning so that even when they are given answers to their objections to the Christian faith, They will still refuse to believe. And they'll come up with new questions simply because they are unable to submit to the truth of the gospel. This is the sad state that we were all once in. Some of you might still be in the state. 
some of you right now, this very moment might be raising objections to the Christian faith. Wait a minute, Caleb. You just skipped over a whole bunch of really important stuff about the reliability and trustworthiness of the, of the gospel. Now you're talking about the subjective internal witness of the Holy Spirit. That seems really convenient, really convenient for you Christians to say that we believe the Bible's true because we believe it's true. That's an objection. Some of you might have all kinds of objections to the Christian faith. I challenge you this morning. First of all, seek the source of your objection. But then I also challenge you this morning to seek God. Seek truth. Ask God to give light to your eyes. If this is true, if what we've seen so far is true, the natural man is not neutral. What hope do we have that we can ever come to know the truth of God? Is there really hope? (laughs) Second, what hope do we have that any of our loved ones will come to know the truth of God? I have three kids, and none of them, to my knowledge, are saved. What hope do I have that they will come to faith in Christ? When we sit at our dinner table in the evenings and we do catechism questions, it's so cute. It's fun. My kids love it. It's so cool to see them memorizing new questions. They're just Wicked smart. Like, they can just remember stuff after hearing it like once or twice. Now they remember it the next day. It's, it's incredible. Is my hope in the fact that every day at the dinner table, Nell's got a new question memorized? All right, she's one step closer. One step cl- Like, as soon as she hits question 145, the last one, like, she's saved. You've got to get to the end of the catechism question. She's saved. Is my hope in that? No. I mean, what does it mean to be saved? What does it look like? How does it happen? Why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe the gospel? How can this ever happen? We see our hopeless condition. We can't even reason our way there. We can't. Now, this gets right at the heart of our question today. Why do we believe the gospel? And the answer is simple. We believe the gospel because we've been given the mind of Christ. We have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Why do you believe the gospel and the next person does not? Is it because you understood something about the message that those other people haven't understood? Are you just a little brighter than other people? Is it because you've been raised in a Christian home with Christian parents in a Christian nation? Are you just a product of your Christian culture and there's, or is there really something more going on? Look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now when he says these things, what are these things he's referring to? Well, let's look at the text. These things God has revealed to us. Through the Spirit. He just said some people are left in the dark. The people that crucified Christ. They didn't understand these things. So what was it they didn't understand? Well, they didn't understand the secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. Now, what did we see before? What what was the content of this decree? What was the content of this wisdom? Christ crucified. Message of the gospel. These things is the gospel. So the gospel, these things, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. If you believe the gospel, all credit for that belief belongs to God. The revealing mentioned in this passage comes through the Holy Spirit. This is the same Spirit that knows and searches the depths of God. There was nothing special in you that caused you to believe the gospel when you heard it. Nothing special in you. Verse 11, to show the intimacy with which the Spirit operates, Paul uses a human analogy. 
He says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now think about this from a strictly human perspective. Who knows your thoughts? You do. No one else can know what you're thinking. We are not always able to clearly articulate our thoughts, right? But no one else knows our thoughts better than us. So just as our soul is intimately tied to our thoughts, so the Holy Spirit is intimately tied to God's thoughts and God's decrees. Romans 8.27, Paul writes, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in Romans, we are told that the Holy Spirit searches the human heart, but here the Holy Spirit searches the depths of God. So God's Spirit bridges the gap, bridges the chasm between the deep things of God and the human heart, graciously enabling human beings to understand the message of the cross. We have the same Spirit of God. The Spirit of God belongs to us. bridges the gap, enabling us to understand the message of the cross. This message would otherwise be incomprehensible. Now think about the people that you know or people you have talked to about your Christian faith. There have been many times when no matter how many questions I can answer about the reliability of the Bible, the trustworthiness of the gospel accounts, when we finally get down to the message of the cross, even if I'm able to give good answers to everything else, there is still a wall of unbelief that exists. The cross is incomprehensible to some people. In fact, it's incomprehensible to all people. It's as if Paul foresaw some kind of objection to this teaching. If only some people believe the gospel message, then it must be that I have some kind of special insight or some kind of superior intellectual knowledge that other people do not have. But Paul makes it totally clear here by saying that only the Spirit of God understands the thoughts of God. And in verse 11, he explicitly says, No one comprehends the thoughts of God. In other words, no one else in the world can understand this wisdom of God on their own. True belief, true wisdom come about when God imparts his Holy Spirit to us and illumines our minds to understand and accept the gospel. Verse 12, he contrasts the spirit of the world and the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, that is the spirit of folly that can lead only to death, it is the spirit of the world that compels us to believe uh, what, what is presented most cleverly or most eloquently. Now, this is, in Paul's day, they placed a high emphasis on eloquence and rhetoric when it came to giving a message. So if someone like Paul came preaching the, uh, the news of the cross in a way that was not eloquent, as some of the philosophers of his day, he was met with stark criticism. People were more prone to believe a message that tickled their ear. The spirit of the world is the spirit of deception and falsehood, but it parades around like the truth. It's dressed up like the truth. This is analogous to our culture today. We live in a visually driven culture where most of the emphasis of any message is placed on how it is presented or how it is perceived rather than the truth or the content of the message. And nowhere is this more apparent than in TV commercials. If you want to see the spirit of the age, watch TV commercials. I can't get away from it. If you've ever been to my house, here I'm talking about TV again. I really don't watch that much TV, but it seems like I do. Maybe I do, I don't know. Uh, if you have ever been to my house and the TV's on, you'll notice that I almost always mute the commercials. 
I can't stand them. First of all, they're always louder than the show I'm watching, which I find annoying, and I think it should be illegal. Um, I'm pretty sure it is illegal, actually. Um, second, they're always filled with annoying voices and sound effects. They are. You listen to the people who, who dub, the, who, who do the commercials, their voices are always annoying. The sound effects are always way over the top, overdone. <laughs> They do that to catch your attention. And third, and most annoying of all, most of them are just outright lies. Most of them are trying to sell me something that I would never need and probably never use in a million years. But the purpose of the commercial is to visually stimulate me enough so that I can be convinced that I really do need whatever product they're selling. Now, just one example of this happened to me the other day. I was watching something on TV. I remember what it was. Commercials came on, I muted them, like I always do. I was doing something else, whatever. I look up at the TV, and there's a commercial of a, of a baby, a baby sitting on the floor. It was like probably eight or, or like nine, eight or nine months old. He was sitting up, you know, playing with, with his mom or whatever. So the mom was sitting next to the baby. But in front of the baby was a robotic teddy bear that was clapping. I don't know what else was going on, but it was clapping. And at the bottom of the screen... It said these words, how does your baby learn? How does your baby learn? So you see the baby looking at the robotic clapping teddy bear, and then the baby's like smiling, and the mom's like smiling, clapping, and then the baby looks at the mom, looks at the teddy bear, and claps. It says, how does your baby learn? I'm thinking, oh, how about this? How about just take the robot, throw it in the trash, Turn the baby 90 degrees to his mom, have the mom clap, and then watch the baby smile and clap. Like, why do you need the robotic teddy bear? Like, who needs this? I'll save $35, and I can teach my own kid how to clap and smile. Like, I just, how does your baby learn? Like, you need this for your baby to learn how to clap and smile? It's ridiculous. Maybe there was more to it. I didn't have the sound on, but... But I, I don't know. I was just, I was angry. It made me angry. Who needs that? So it was the same, it was kind of the same thing. In Paul. So like, just as we, like, they do this because they know it works. Some parents look at that and they're like, oh my gosh, my kid's not going to learn how to clap if I don't get this robotic teddy bear. I don't, maybe parents don't say that, but they make these commercials for a reason. They want to stimulate you visually enough so that you, you buy into their message. Well, in Paul's day, it was the same thing, only instead of visual, it was rhetorical or eloquence, right? So they have these philosophers going around everywhere, presenting their message, like the content of the message, whatever, as long as it sounded good, as long as it was eloquent and flowery and, and their rhetoric, they were well-trained, then people were prone to listen to them. But the message of the cross is not nice. It's not dressed up. It's certainly not clean. But Paul says the gospel message contained therein is the power of God. We're not after fancy rhetoric. We're not after visual stimulation. We're after content of the message. What's the content? It's Christ crucified. Now, as I've been meditating on this truth this week, my heart has been overflowing with thankfulness to God. Thankfulness to God for this book. As a man that God has led into pastoral ministry, I don't know what I'd be able to do without the Bible. I'm not very clever. I'm not very creative or original. Many times, I am slow to learn and understand. My memory is weak. I have a hard time recalling information, even immediately after I read it. And all of this is to say that if my role as a pastor consisted of me having to come up with creative little homilies 
or I had to find ways to dress up my preaching or make it visually stimulating with flowery, sophisticated rhetoric, I would run out of ideas very quickly. There are many times when I feel unprepared and ill-equipped to minister and disciple others. It's quite possible that if one of you comes up to me after the service with a serious question about the Christian faith or a particular struggle you are dealing with, it's possible, quite possible, that I may have no answer for you in that moment. I pray that I do. I pray that the Spirit of God is working in me and changing me and shaping me and helping me learn and, and become better. But I know that intellectually I'm dim-witted at times and maybe intellectually average. Maybe some of you feel that way about yourselves and your own abilities. My heart has been overflowing this week with thankfulness for the Bible. My ability to minister, your ability to minister to others, does not rest in your own abilities. Take up this book and read it. I want our hearts to echo David's when he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment, your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. For it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. For I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules. For you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. We don't need to dress up the gospel. We don't need a message that is flowery and rhetorical and, and tickles people's ear. That doesn't change anybody. What does David say? tastes sweeter than honey. The law of God. Your precepts. Your word. How could we ever neglect this book? Now back to verse 12. We have not received the spirit of this world, the spirit that leads to deception and death, but we have received the spirit who is from God so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, what are those things freely given us by God? It's that same message of the cross. God gives us his spirit so that the gospel makes sense to us and, and transforms our hearts so that we believe it. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says it like this. It is one thing to affirm that the Bible claims to be the words of God. It is another thing to be convinced that those claims are true. Our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible to our hearts and gives us an inner assurance that these are the words of our Creator speaking to us. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God, a person will not receive spiritual truths. And in particular, will not receive or accept the truth that the words of Scripture are in fact the words of God. Apart from the Spirit of God, no one believes the Gospel. Verse 13, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So, Paul's clear, the message of the cross comes to us in words. Now, these words can be spoken or written or some other form of, of verbal communication. When I say verbal, I don't mean necessarily spoken, but sign language. They can come to you in sign language, but it has to consist of some sort of verbal communication or language 
And notice again that it is the Spirit who teaches these words to us by interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So again, not everyone is given the special interpretation. Many people who read the Bible or hear the gospel message do not believe. But those that do believe, believe because God's Spirit gives them spiritual understanding. Verse 14, we've already seen this, this verse clearly states that the natural person is not able to accept spiritual truths. Verse 15, the spiritual person is able to make spiritual judgments about all things, but is not subject to the judgments of any natural man. And this doesn't mean that we never listen to any unbeliever. We don't care what they have to say to us. And it uh, doesn't mean that every judgment we make is always true either. It doesn't mean that, well, I'm a spiritual person. He's a natural person, so I'm not going to listen to anything he says, and everything that I say is automatically right. right? That's not what Paul's getting at, right? Rather, no spiritual man should consider the wisdom of the world to be greater than the wisdom revealed by God in his word. The final authority in our lives is God's word. It's not the wisdom of the world. That's what Paul means when he says that... Um, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. It's amazing what the Spirit of God, the insight that the Spirit of God gives at times. It's amazing how different the world looks to me than it does to my unbelieving neighbors. Have you noticed that? If you have any conversation about social issues or politics or, I mean, even things about the church or Almost anything, if you're coming at it from a biblical worldview, it is radically different. You're approaching it from different motives. You're approaching it with different goals in mind. Your life is on a completely different trajectory. That's the Spirit of God, guys. Praise God for that. Worldview matters. No spiritual man should consider the wisdom of the world to be greater than the wisdom revealed by God. The supreme and final authority in all matters of faith and practice rests in the scriptures alone. Verse 16. No natural man can stand above the truth of God's word so as to instruct God himself. Paul writes, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? If a natural man could come up to a man filled with the Spirit and somehow assert himself over that, Paul says, who could really do that? Who really, apart from having the mind of Christ, can really usurp the mind of Christ? I mean, who, I mean, who can really instruct God? Who knows better than God? Nobody. And he finishes out the passage by, seeing, by summing it all up with, we have the mind of Christ. So, back to our original question. Why do we believe the Bible? Ultimately, it's not because we have seen and evaluated all the evidence. It's not because we're all experts in textual criticism or the history of the transmission of the Bible. It's not because we have all the answers to all those questions. That's not why we believe the Bible. My answer is the same as it was before. We believe the Bible because we have been given the mind of Christ. We are convinced of the truthfulness of the Word of God because we have been united with Christ and intimately share in the very thoughts of God. To have the mind of Christ is to have access to the very thoughts of God. In this way, as the Westminster Confession says, our persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. So we believe the Bible because we have been given the mind of Christ. So what does this truth mean for us? How should this affect our lives? Well, there's a lot of ways. First, it ought to humble us. 
We do not deserve to have the mind of Christ. You realize that? Nobody deserves the transforming grace of the Spirit of God. That is a work of our sovereign, gracious, holy God. That's something that He imparts to us. We do not deserve that. We ought to be humbled. We ought to stand in wonder, in awe of the fact that we understand this truth. Second, it ought to result in praise and thanksgiving toward God. When was the last time you thanked God for His Holy Spirit? Thanked God for giving light to your eyes, to understand the words. Why is it that when you open the Bible and you read, your heart burns, your, 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 your spiritual eyes are opened, you're comforted, you're convicted of sin, you are, um, you're brought to repentance. Why do those things happen? You don't deserve that. Thank God today. Thank God for that. That is His work in you. It ought to humble us. It ought to result in praise and thanksgiving toward God. What else does it mean? It might need that we need to repent. It might need that we, that we need to repent of the ways we have neglected the Bible. You know, many people who would call themselves Christians, I'm convinced, rarely read the Bible. A lot of churches that I have been a part of um, up until Redeemer, I think the, the, the church I was a part of in college, we, we, we actually did a survey. We passed out and we had some questions about just, just to get an idea of where people were at when it came to spiritual disciplines and things like that. And I wasn't really surprised. I mean, I kind of was. But, um, I mean, it was, the numbers were staggeringly low on how often do you open the Bible? How often do you read the Bible? When's the last time you read the Bible from cover to cover? Um, just those kinds of questions. It was staggering. And so I'm not convinced that that's not the case here. Um, I hope that's not the case. But I, I, I think that a lot of people who call themselves Christians rarely Open the Bible. So, we need to repent of the ways we have neglected. We need to read it. We need to read the Bible. This is clear, right? This is common. This is, a, this is nothing new. We need to study it. We need to memorize it. We need to read other books that help us understand the Bible. We need to rely on it, not on our own abilities. We need to let the Bible be the final authority in our lives and in our church. And last, we, sh- we ought to be encouraged to speak the truth of the gospel to others, no matter who they are. And if what we've seen is correct today, then we can boldly and clearly proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone with the hope that God will call his children out of darkness into his marvelous light. We can stop resting on our own understanding and abilities. There's no way we can answer everyone's objections. We don't have to be experts in theology or history or the original languages in order to convince people to believe the gospel. Rather, the power for transforming hearts lies in the very message itself. All we have to do is proclaim it. Remember Paul's message. Remember what he said. We impart this message in words. We impart this message in words. Where do those words come from? They have to come from our lips. They have to come from someone opening the scriptures. If we call ourselves Christians but we never talk about Christ, we never open the Bible, who are we? We must use words. Let us never think that anyone will be saved simply by our service or our kind spirit 
or our work ethic or our hospitality. These things are great, but there's no supernatural power in them. The power that changes hearts and brings illumination rests in the message of the cross. Let's boldly proclaim that message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your your word, your decree, your message to us is Christ crucified. Father, that is the message that has brought us life. God, I pray now that our hearts as a body would be united around that message. Lord, as we sing this song and as we partake of the Lord's Supper in a little bit, God, I pray that we would remember that we are doing this together. We have the mind of Christ. We are united by your Spirit into one faith, one Lord, one baptism. And God, I pray that our hearts would experience true communion with you, with one another, as we share in the, as we all share in the same Spirit. Father, make us bold proclaimers of this gospel message so that we can see many others added to your body. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.